Welcome to my study on understanding the book of Acts. These messages were given live during my regular Sunday morning services. Now, while each of these messages are able to help you as a standalone message, I recommend listening from the beginning because they do build on one another. Now, I pray these help you in your journey of understanding God's word. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. Let's get to the message. All right. So while they're going around, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. And we're going to be continuing on in our in our study, understanding acts. Um, and we're kind of, we're kind of jumping around a little bit. I didn't plan on doing a verse by verse treatment of acts this time. I wanted to go through more concepts and, and, uh, looking at various things. And I think this, I think God's got something pretty amazing for us today. And I find it funny that I didn't do this message last week, but I'm doing it on, on Valentine's day. They were talking about, talking about love and commitment and emotion. So it's kind of, it's kind of neat. So, in the modern, uh, among modern-day Christians, a very common belief is that Christianity, is that our faith, is the process of taking a bad person and turning them into a good person, right? Learning how to stay away from ungodly bad choices and start making godly good choices. And a lot of us have this idea in our head that that's Christianity. And really, it's, it's an unfortunate belief, but it's not quite the same. But what ends up happening is that we make our faith our journey of faith, we make it into a path to try to make good choices instead of bad choices. And there's nothing wrong with making good choices. As Christians, we should be making good choices and we should be trying to avoid bad choices. But if we get ourselves in the mindset that my faith is about being good, then we miss the central point of our faith, which is we're not. <laughs> I don't know if you realize this, but sometimes your kids are good. Then there's sometimes where they're themselves. You, you, everyone understands what I'm talking about here, okay? Right? It's like, why did you hit your brother in the head with that toy? I don't know. Yes, you do. You wanted to. See, Scripture tells us something very different. Scripture tells us that Christ came to earth to accomplish something that we are physically incapable of accomplishing on our own. And that is making us right before a righteous God. Christ came to do that. We are incapable of doing that. If you think about this, from grandparent to grandchild, none of us are acceptable to God. I, I, I know, grandparents, you're a little cherub. Little baby. Just mooches, mooches your cheeks. They are unclean before a righteous God. There's a truth there, right? We're all separated from God. We are victims of Genesis chapter 3. We are victims of a sinful separation between creator and creation, between mankind and God. And we cannot accomplish that, that reconciliation on our own. We need help from the only one who really can help us. If you think about this, no, good, no amount of good works can make you right with God. And learning how to follow a list of how to be good, of a list of how to make good decisions versus bad decisions, does not make us right with God either. Things like morality, faith, and the heart of a servant are not what make us right with God. Morality, faith, and the heart of a servant is the fruit of a heart that has already been made right with God. And sometimes we run the risk of getting it backwards. We think, because I make moral decisions, because I make decisions that line up with the Christian faith, then I'm right with God. And, and you know, when I serve, that's great. 
God should be happy with me. I show up with church, I don't watch bad movies, and I do things for him. That's great, but that doesn't make us right with God. God makes us right with him, and in our gratitude, we make moral choices. We make choices, we, we decide to do things that line up with his, the teachings of his word, and we serve him. See, it's a fruit of being made right with God. It is not what makes us right with God. It's very easy to get that backwards. Now, nowhere in Scripture do we have an example more powerful of this truth than in the life and the calling of the Apostle Paul. There is no one that shows this to be more true than the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul was an extremely committed believer in the law and in the preservation of its purity. That needs to be made clear. He, was, he loved the law of God. He loved the word of God. And he would do anything necessary to preserve its purity. See, we got to get it right by the letter. Unfortunately, it wasn't until Paul came face to face with, face to face with himself, examining his soul through the eyes of God, that he actually learned the truth of what loving God really means. And sometimes we need to go back to the, to the understanding of what loving God really means. See, Paul was a religious leader of the day. He was one of the, he was, uh, one of the leaders of the Jewish people. He was, uh, the term is a Pharisee. They were experts in the law. They were zealots for the faith. They were the, ex- they were the extremists. They were the ones who'd give up everything to do anything that the law said. They lived according to a strict adherence to the letter of the law. So if, well, uh, I don't want to jump ahead of myself. So Paul was taught by one of the religious bigwigs of the day, a man named Gamaliel. His education was flawless. It would be the equivalent of an Ivy Ivy League education today if Ivy League schools had anything to do with faith. Some of them have Christian names in their their names, and they used to be founded by, by, uh, by Christians, but they have really nothing to do with the faith today. I think that can be made pretty clear. But the Pharisees were both respected and feared. They were respected for their knowledge. Man, they, had, they could answer any question you wanted. They knew exactly what to say in any situation. They knew what God's law said about this and about this and about this. But they were also feared because they enforced that law without any consideration for the individual. If the law said that if you do X, you die. And you do X, they're more than willing to take care of the rest. If the law said this brings death and you do it, they're more than happy to bring you death because that's what the law says. There was no consideration made for who you were, what your circumstances were, or what brought you to that choice. All they cared about was the law said this, and this is what we do. They're what we would call legalists in today's world. It was a graceless faith. Now, aren't we glad that we don't have people like that in the church today who are only interested in the blind adherence to a set of standards that are usually not found in the Bible? Isn't that amazing? Think about this. Have you ever been confronted with someone who believes that there is a set of standards that you must live up to, and if you don't, you're unsaved. You're not even just struggling. You're unsaved. You know, if you dress a certain way, you're unsaved. If you don't dress a certain way, you're unsaved. How many of you have been in the church long enough to know that you wouldn't dare step in the pulpit without a three-piece suit on? 
right? Not just jacket and tie, pants, jacket, vest, tie. And it better be pressed, and it better match. And you need to stand tall, and you must have a booming voice. Because if you didn't, you weren't a man of God. It's amazing, because Jesus used to preach in a bathrobe, I'm just saying, with sandals and dirty feet, I'm just saying. Uh, by the way, Jesus didn't own or use deodorant. I'm just, just, just pointing that out. If you listen to a certain type of music, you're unsaved. I listened to a guy on a podcast uh, uh, talking about um, uh, Cooper stuff, John Cooper from Skillet. He's got a podcast, and we, he talks about the church and, uh, and, and Christianity in the world today. And basically what the guy was saying is no one should listen to him because he's a, he's a rock and roll guy. Rock and roll guys obviously can't be real Christians because they're not listening to godly music, even though all of his music is about God. You see, he predetermined in his mind that anyone who fits into this category or likes this is unsaved. Isn't that amazing? If you watch certain types of movies, you're unsaved. If you don't pray in tongues, you're unsaved. And the list goes on. One thing I've noticed over the years is that people who adhere to these types of lists, people who put these kinds of judgments out on you, their life always lines up with the list. The list never goes outside of their life. It's always very carefully tucked into whatever their standards are, whatever they do. I notice the people who, 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 uh, who have these, these standards about music and about life and about dress and about how we live and what we do, if they don't speak in tongues, speaking in tongues isn't one of the, one of the things on the list. But if they do, it's on the list. So it's kind of like the list is this, it's put out there to make the rest of us realize how amazing they are. And how pathetic we are. <laughs> that we will never be what they are. We will never achieve what they had. They're the Pharisees of the day. They're the religious leaders and the ones who are more than willing to point out to you how bad your life is in comparison to theirs. And how pure they are. They exist today. And they want us to know that they're more committed than regular church people. I've actually heard that in conversations. Sometimes I just wish people, you know, there's regular church people and then there's the ones who are really involved. Regular church people? We come in sizes? What am I? In Starbucks, I think I would be a tall, not quite grande, definitely not a venti. I would say I'm a tall double shot. Just just saying. One of the things that I think we can learn from the life of Paul, and certain, certainly from the legacy of the Pharisees, is that there is a significant difference between loving the knowledge of God and loving what God loves. Can I say that again? But there is a significant difference between loving God and loving what God loves. God loves obedience. How many of us can agree with that? God loves obedience. But you know what? God also loves a repentant heart. A heart does not come, become repentance until it is confronted with its disobedience. And sometimes, how many of you would agree with this, we might have a repentant heart that repents of the same thing on a regular basis. God, this time, <laughs> this time, 
I know we just had this conversation five minutes ago. But this time I'm serious. This is usually me on the road dealing with mental pictures of driving a larger vehicle and running over people. And by larger vehicle, I mean something that doesn't have a penny in the back. (laughs) So some of you have no idea what that actually means. You know what? God loves faith. You know that God loves faith, but God also loves the unbeliever. You see, we can be proud about our faith, but we also got to remember that God loves the unbeliever. You know that God loves the generous, but God also loves those who have nothing to give. We can get caught up in what we give. And we realize that God also loves the person who has nothing to give and all they can bring is themselves. He has just as much love for them as someone who gives a million dollars to something. It's easy to look at those who are lost, broken, and honestly just plain evil sometimes and judge them as not just unsaved but unworthy to be saved. You ever met anyone like that? You know what? I don't even know if God can reach that person. Most of us have several politicians running through our mind right now. God's grace is powerful, but I don't know if he can reach that person. What we need to remember is that while God does see all of their faults he also, and their sins, he also sees one of his children who he loves and a person he sent his own son to earth to die for. And when we start looking at the life of Paul, the power of God's love to reach past circumstances becomes very, very evident. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, it reads like this. It says, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, meaning Christianity, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, meaning he was blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. He was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Paul was so committed to his faith that he was willing to be the one who brought death to those that threatened it. Paul was willing to kill for the purity of his faith. He didn't want to kill himself. He didn't want to kill people himself. But he was more than willing to take you and let somebody else do it. He wasn't going to be the one with the sword in his hand. But it's okay. He knew people who had swords and they were more than willing to use it. You know, the Colosseum always needed people. In this section of Acts, we see Paul on his way to Jerusalem, uh, from Jerusalem to Damascus with letters in hand allowing him to arrest anyone who confessed Christ as the Messiah. 
Sometimes we want to think about the emotion that was driving him to do this. And sometimes we think the emotion that drove Paul to this was hate. We make the mistake of thinking Paul hated Christians so much that he wanted them dead. But that's actually not the case. Paul loved the law of God so much he saw Christianity as something that threatened it and he wanted to stomp it out. He actually believed that his hatred towards Christianity was a righteous mindset. These people are unredeemable. These people are coming against the faith. These people are making bad choices. They are leading people away from the truth. They must die. He had very much the same mindset that modern-day Muslims have about Islam. It's the truth. You're challenging the faith. You deserve to die. They believed. He believed that he was righteous in his understanding. He believed he was doing God's work. How often do we do the same thing? How often do we judge others unworthy because of their life choices? And we view our judgment of them as our own righteousness. Think about that. We see a lifestyle that we know is ungodly, that is condemned by God, and we view that person as not only unsaved, but unworthy to be saved, and we see our view of them as a degree of righteousness. Luke 18, 10 through 14 says this, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Woo, did you get lucky finding me? extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing over there would not so much raise his eyes to heaven. The tax collector was so broken and aware of his own sin, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to, the, went to his house justified rather than the other man. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be, exhausted, will be exalted. What God is saying is the Pharisee, the righteous one, who was pointing out the iniquity of the tax collector, he walked away unjustified, unclean before God. The tax collector... The thief, the liar, which is what they were back then, left justified. What was the difference between the two? The Pharisee viewed his judgment as righteousness. The tax collector became very aware of the reality of his life before a righteous God. There's only one way to righteousness, and it's not through pride. So Paul gets knocked off his donkey, and it's impossible to know exactly why God chose Paul for an unparalleled salvation experience. Paul's salvation experience is so different from anybody else's. It is unparalleled in history. You think about this. Jesus had already gone back to heaven. He had already ascended. 
He manifests himself to Paul. This doesn't happen again. This is an unbelievable, unparalleled experience. Paul was directly confronted by the risen Savior. Now you notice that Jesus did not ask Paul when Paul is laying on the ground, scrambling around trying to figure where he is because everything around him is so bright he's blinded. Jesus does not say, Paul, why are you persecuting my people? Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, the one whom you persecute. Paul did not believe he was persecuting Christ. He believed he was persecuting Christians. Jesus makes everything very clear that when we are persecuted, when we are railed against, when we're lied against, when people make up stories about us, when people don't want anything to do with you, when people are trying to censor you because of your godly Christian views, good thing that's not happening. They're not coming after you. They're coming after Christ. It is him that they persecute, not you. We're the ones that have to deal with it while we're here, but honestly, they will stand in judgment against their persecution against Christ. God will not judge them because they didn't like us. You were a good person, but you used to tell short jokes about that George guy. That's the end of that for you. Sorry, Keith, there's no hope for you. (laughs) Me and Keith see things very differently. (laughs) Sorry, that may take a minute for some of you, but it's fine. Um. (laughs) When Paul addresses Jesus, he calls him Lord. Even after Jesus says, it is I, Jesus, whom you persecute, Paul refers back to him as Lord. It's amazing what happens there. He says, so trembling and astonished, he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what to do. Then the men uh, men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. My personal thought here, and this is my personal thought, is that Paul instantly understood the divinity of Christ and his role as Messiah. I think in that second, in that confrontation, Paul's training, his understanding of the law, his understanding of the prophecies regarding the Messiah, his understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to do, who he was supposed to be, how he was supposed to come, all of it suddenly made sense to him and he realized the depth of his mistake and what he was really doing. I think there was an amazing amount of clarity that came to his mind that day. And Paul is told to go into the city. And then, I love this, you will be told what you will do. Paul is one of the few people that I know in Scripture who had no choice but to serve God. God pre-planned this for a long time. He had picked Paul out of time. He will be the one that I am going to use. Constantly reminds me that God sees the beginning from the end and he never picks any of us by accident. Paul immediately goes into a time of fasting. There's no doubt in my mind that in one second of time, Paul's eyes were both closed and opened at the same time. God closed Paul's eyes to the world that was around him 
Nothing else was going to distract him. And he opened his eyes to the spiritual world that was also all around him. Paul began to understand. Paul did the only thing a devout Jew would do at that time. He went into a time of fasting. He went to a time where he was denying, denying himself any earthly comfort because he had something he needed to do. He had, he, had a, he had a searching that he needed to walk through. When Paul got saved, he came face to face with the truth of himself through the eyes of Christ. Can I say that again? When Paul got saved, he came face to face with the truth of himself through the eyes of Christ. He understood exactly the type of person he was, exactly the mistakes that he made. And for three days, he was blind and had nothing to do. Think about this. He was blind and had nothing to do but sit there and be cared for by the same people he wanted to have killed. Huh. That's a little different, isn't it? You think about this. Paul was more than likely in Jerusalem when Christ was crucified. He was a Pharisee. He wouldn't have missed being in Jerusalem during Passover. It is entirely possible that when Paul, that Paul was one of the voices yelling crucify. It is entirely possible that in that square, he may have been one of the guys passing out money. Tell everyone you want Barabbas released. Tell everyone you want Barabbas released and we want that one crucified. He may have been along those, uh, one of those guys. And even if he wasn't one of those guys, he would have known about the death of the Messiah, known about the death of Christ, and he would have been happy about it. Because this was a troublemaker for Judaism. He was a troublemaker for the law of God. He would have rejoiced in the death of Christ for all the wrong reasons. And you can see based on his life after that fact that now that their leader is dead, let's stomp out the rest. He was committed to ending this process. He was a soul, think about this, he was a sold out believer for all the wrong things. That's, that's terrifying. And then he comes face to face with Christ. Jesus steps out of heaven to offer Paul the very forgiveness he didn't believe in. The very forgiveness that he was trying to stomp out. Jesus offered him the very message he would spend the rest of his life bringing to the world. You think about this. Salvation is centered around forgiveness. And forgiveness has four basic parts to it. And each one is increasingly more difficult. The first part of forgiveness is that we experience the forgiveness of God. All of our sins are forgiven. We are washed clean. Now, I don't know about you, but my life was very different from who I was. Very different from who I was before I, made, before I met Christ. And the idea that I have been made clean, the idea that I have been made acceptable to God was not only very difficult for me to, to, to grasp and to accept in the beginning, it is still difficult for me sometimes as I'm walking through my faith. I've been a Christian for 27 years now. I've been preaching and teaching the Bible for over 25 of those years. And it is still difficult for me sometimes to grasp the idea that I am clean. See, some people think you shouldn't struggle with your salvation. Salvation is a struggle. 
We're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, daily taking up our cross, reminding, of our, reminding ourselves we're not worthy of what we've been given. The moment you get up out of bed and you're like, God is so, so lucky to have me on his side. Gosh, where would Copenhagen be without me? It would still be in upstate New York on the Tug Hill. God is not bound to the activities of a singer. He's not bound to my life. God's not lucky to have me. I'm lucky to have him. And every day I should be thankful for the opportunities he gives me to continue to serve him. It's a big difference there. It's a very big difference there. But we have to receive that forgiveness of God. And if you struggle with your faith, if you're one of those people who struggles with your faith, it's not a lack of faith, folks. People say, well, you struggle with your faith because faith, it's just a lack of faith. You don't believe in the promises of God. No, that's not true. The, the reality is, is that you know who you are. <laughs> Sometimes we struggle with our own salvation because we know who we are and what we've done. We know our decisions. We know our motives. When people say, I'm sure you didn't mean it. We know we did. <laughs> we know you didn't mean to say that, even though you said it like nine times in a row. We know who we are. We'll get back to that in just a second. Second area of forgiveness is that we experience the forgiveness of others. This is usually easier. The people that we have hurt and that we have wronged, if they're believers, they offer us forgiveness because they have received the forgiveness of Christ. Sometimes that's nice to be, oh, good. Good, you're a Christian, so you have to forgive me. Okay, good, good, good. The third one we offer is we forgive others. We don't like this one very much because it requires a lot of us. And I think the best example of this is Ananias, verses 10 through 20. It says, and now there was a certain disciple, notice he says disciple, meaning a committed follower of the teachings of Christ, at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his his sight again. And Ananias answered and said, You crazy. Lord, Father God, I didn't know you had a drinking problem. What are you, nuts? He said, Lord, I'd heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he is here and has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. God, he has killed your people. He's here to kill more, and you're sending me to his right to him? I'm the first one he's going to see? And the Lord said, I think I said go. Pretty sure I said go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and children of God. Listen to this line. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands, he said to him, Brother Saul, notice he called him Brother, meaning fellow believer. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has come and has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. He arose and was baptized. So when he had received food and was strengthened, Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. By the way, who would have told him what he needed to do? It was the fellow disciples who told Paul what his next steps were after spending some time with him. And we can tell because of verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Ananias knew who Paul was. He knew what he had already done. He knew what he was there to do. He knew his life could be threatened and he knew he, it, he was scared to death of everything that had happened. But God said, go to this person, bring him my power, bring him my authority. Because he is my chosen vessel. Ananias had to immediately forgive Paul for everything that he knew he had done. And not only go to him in humility, but go to him and empower him to bring the message of the gospel to the rest of the world. Someone who would have happily had Ananias killed three days before. (laughs) I I, got to tell you, this is crazy. Let me put this in perspective. Think of the politician you like the least. And all of a sudden, you hear them, you see them get in front of a news camera. I need to let the nation know I have found salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am now committed to his ways and his purposes and his word. And all of my, all of my power and authority is now going to be moved to, to following and living and, and legislating according to the Bible. We know a couple of things about that person. He ain't going to stay in office very long. <laughs> and half of us wouldn't believe him. Right? We'd say, prove it first. I need to see something from you before I'm going to actually believe that Jesus has saved you. Ananias was not given that chance. He was told to go, and he went. Stop and consider the amount of faith and forgiveness that Ananias carried with him in order to walk in that level of obedience. And the verse that I think is the most powerful one there is verse 16. For I will show him, meaning Paul, how many things he will suffer for my name's sake. This one verse gives me a small idea why God chose Paul. Paul was so violent. He was so passionate. He was so willing to do anything that needed to happen. Makes him a powerful person. But he was on the wrong path. So Jesus stepped out of heaven to put Paul on the right path, knowing that same passion, that same zeal, that same reckless abandonment for everything and anything that needed to be done was going to now be transferred over to the gospel of Christ. Paul was uniquely suited to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, especially because the rest of the disciples didn't want to. You can tell they didn't want to because they barely left Jerusalem. And they only did so begrudgingly. It was the Pharisee who believed that the Gentile world was useless. They were dogs. They weren't even savable. He was the one that stepped out of his life and went to the Gentile world. In Romans, he actually says, I wish I could have this much. I could have a calling to reach my own people, but God has not released me to that. I am to the Gentiles. He was so committed to what God has given him. There was nothing that was going to stand in his way. He also knew the depth of his own sin. He knew how badly he had failed in his pursuit of God. He knew that his whole life was a lie until he met Jesus on that road. That's powerful. 
The knowledge of his sin and the forgiveness that he had received would become the very fuel he would need to strengthen him for the task ahead. And knowing that, Paul did the only thing that he knew that that makes any sense at that point. He immediately began to preach Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. It's the only response that he had. It's the only thing that made sense to him, that the world needed what God had given him, the reality of Christ the Messiah. The last area of forgiveness is probably the most difficult and the one that I know a lot of people struggle with. This is also, this area of forgiveness is not only something that Christians struggle with regularly, this is something that keeps Christians from getting involved in serving. It's learning to accept the fact that you've been forgiven and forgive yourself. Sometimes we don't serve because we don't think we deserve it. Sometimes, even in our point of service, we actually don't let ourselves get fully into it. We don't allow ourselves to succeed because I may be serving God, but I don't deserve to succeed in my service of God because of what I was before I met him. That's for other people who are more righteous and more pure and more holy. But they're no less forgiven. They're no different than you are. The truth of the matter is God picked him And the other side of it is God has also picked you. If you take nothing else away from today's message, it should be this, that no matter what you have done, where you have been, what you have committed, what your mindsets were, you are not beyond the grace of God. Your failures are not too great, your issues are not too severe, and you are not beyond the power of God to reconcile. You are also not beyond the power of God to succeed in his calling. The calling that God has placed on your life, you are not beyond it. Your choices have not made you uh, uh, incapable of carrying it out. There's only one thing standing between you and the reality of God's calling in your life, and that's the choice that you are making to either commit to the path or to not. Paul committed to the path because he could see no other way forward for him. Sometimes that's exactly what we need to do as well. We need to realize that God has more for us than just Sunday morning. He has more for you than just a momentary couple of hours of satisfaction. Went to church today, met, had an encounter with God. That's great, that's wonderful. What about Monday morning? What about Monday afternoon? What about lunch with your coworkers? What about Thursday night when that phone rings and you desperately don't want to pick it up because your caller ID shows you who that person is? What, What about that moment? What about when God tugs on your heart to get involved with something that you don't think you're capable of being involved in because of your past? You see, you've placed your sin above the grace of God. And if the book of Acts tells us anything, is that you don't hold a candle to Paul. So there is nothing that you could have done in your life that would make you unworthy to serve a righteous God. If we would just commit to following him. If we would just let go of yesterday and embrace today and tomorrow. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to come before you and to look at your word. Lord, I thank you that you show us constantly through your word that you are bigger than our problems, that you show us constantly that you are above our failings, that you can take us from where we were, no matter where that is, 
and bring us into a future we didn't, we may not have even believed existed for someone like us. If we would just commit ourselves to your plan, we would just commit ourselves to your grace, to your calling. Trust you that you'll be with there, be there with us every step of the way. Father, grant us the humility to trust you in all that we do. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.